It's Tuesday, August 17th. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, which is based on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Last week, we spoke with Gail Zamok-Gloman, an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of a book entitled The Daughters of Gabani. The book, which is her latest, tells the story of Kurdish women who led soldiers into combat against ISIS in northeastern Syria. That may be something they'll be doing again soon, sadly enough. She and I also talked about Afghanistan, which she first visited in 2005. It's worth mentioning that when she and I spoke last week, the Taliban's offensive was nearing its grim conclusion, but Kabul had not yet fallen. Nevertheless, the conversation anticipated much of what has now come to pass. Without further ado, here we go. Gail, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Great to join you. The first question we ask of our guests is, how did they get from there to here? Give us a brief overview of your life up till the present moment, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, to me, it's always about how do you get attention to people, places, countries, organizations that are having a positive impact, that are making a difference. I started out in news. I started out covering politics and spent a lot of time covering presidential politics, the, the Hill, um, looking at the intersection of politics and policy. Worked for George Stephanopoulos the first year of this week with George Stephanopoulos. And then I left news. I actually quit ABC three times. <laughs> once to go to Spain on a Fulbright, once to go to Germany on a fellowship uh, from the Robert Bosch Foundation, and then finally to go to business school. And it was really business school. I started writing about entrepreneurship and war. So you're overeducated, in other words. <laughs> yes, I happily am. And I say this is, you know, I come from a place uh, of people who didn't have the chance of education. You know, my mom, John was a, was a single mom who worked two jobs, right? She was a CWA union, uh -huh. worked the phone company during the day and sold Tupperware at night. And, you know, nobody I grew up with had a college degree. And, and really, it's only their sacrifice that allows me to do any of this work. So prior to the book we're about to talk about, you've written two other books. Um, yes. Where you find the time to do this, given your resume, <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure. But tell us about those two books before we get on to The Daughters of Gabani. Uh, it's a privilege to tell these stories. And the, the first book I did was about a teenager whose business supported her family under the Taliban. Because what so few people know is that so many girls were breadwinners during the Taliban years. And Dressmaker of Karkana is really their story. And the second book uh, is called Ashley's War. And that was about an all-women special operations team in the U.S. that was recruited for Army Ranger and Navy SEAL missions while women were actually officially banned from ground combat. So where are we in the conception of Gee, I want to write a book about the daughters of Kambani. <laughs> what time is that? In 2016, one of the soldiers from Ashley's War called me from Syria. And she called me on WhatsApp and said, you know, you have to come here. And my initial reaction, John, was no way. You know, <laughs> I know exactly what this means now. This would be book three. You know this. And, and it takes over your life. It would mean going back and forth to Syria, 
earning the trust of people who did not speak on a regular basis to foreigners and really living that world. It takes over everything if you do it right. And then I went to Syria the summer of 2017. It took me a full year to get there, given logistics and war. And the minute I saw it on the ground, I, I really thought I was either in Starship Troopers or the opening scene of Wonder Woman. And I thought, you know, we just, we don't know this story and we have to know it. Wow. And your story is about the Syrian Kurdish Women's Protection Units, which is known as YPJ. Tell us how that came together. How did these women come to form this extraordinary fighting force? You know, most of these women that you meet in Daughters of Kobani, they were, they took up arms thinking they would be maybe keeping the Assad regime out of their neighborhoods. Chaos comes to the whole country with the Syrian civil war. And their thought was the same as lots of people all around the U.S., right? Protect your neighborhood, protect your family, protect your town. And for Kurds who had been denied all kinds of rights, including to name their children, to celebrate their holidays, for the first time, be able to govern yourselves. So that was the goal. And then they get a lot of on-the-job training fighting the Al-Qaeda-linked groups, Nusra and others who are the predecessor to then what becomes, you know, the grandfather of these movements, which becomes the Islamic State in 2013. And they never thought they would be fighting ISIS or fighting, you know, folks who captured the world's imagination. But their fight for self-rule and self-governance collides with ISIS and the ISIS quest to take terrain. And that is how these women who had taken up arms as part of the Syrian Kurdish movement that was pretty obscure gets catapulted onto the global stage. And as you reported on these women, just tell us about, you know, two or three of the most impressive that you met. It is such an unlikely story, right? We just don't have the image of our head of, you know, 50 young women with smiley face socks, fatigues, Timex watches, sometimes with flowers in their hair and AK-47s around their shoulders going in to fight the Islamic State. And that is the reality. These young women lived every single day. Um, there's Azima, who's I think a lot of readers have written me about, swashbuckling, chain smoking, high school volleyball star, who's the kind of friend who never takes no for an answer. And then Rojda, her childhood friend and distant cousin, who's, uh, she's Joe March in Little Women, she's more the Beth character, right? Introverted, loves Diego Maradona, much rather be reading a book than talking to people. And they're both so effective because they have the trust of the men and the women that they lead in battle. And was this just leadership by example that that led to that trust and respect? Or were there decisive moments where the guys basically said these girls know what they're doing? The battlefield's an amazing leveler. Right. And what won the respect of everyone was them leading from the front. Right. And these were mixed units. Women were leading men and women in battle. Right. <laughs> it is an extraordinary story. And they had as a political ideology from Kurdish leader named Abdullah Ocalan. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. So Ocalan is sitting in Turkish prison, right? He's sitting in prison on Imrali Island. Right. Turkey's sort of enemy number one in the eyes of the Turkish state. And he has this idea that the Kurds cannot be free until women are free. He's influenced by Murray Bookchin, this guy in Vermont whose ex-wife fought Bernie Sanders, John, on a waterfront development project, right? I mean, Murray Bookchin was to the left of Bernie mm -hmm. and had this idea of grassroots, ecological, skeptical of corporate power governance that was based on, you know, in many ways, New England 
town hall meetings. And that that idea met Ocalan's idea of Kurdish liberation ideology, really, that had women at its heart. And those two ideas came together in northeastern Syria, this sliver of no man's land recognized by nobody that then becomes America's partner. So we we get to Kobani, uh, a decisive battle. Describe that for us. So you have this town on the Turkish border that is overrun by ISIS. You know, the Kurds have far fewer people, far less weapons, far fewer resources, but they're holding out against ISIS. And that is captured from cameras that are stationed in Turkey. And so everybody starts watching this kind of unstoppable ISIS that's never had one battlefield loss, meet this group of Syrian Kurds nobody has heard of. The Americans at this point are watching ISIS take town after town after town, and they're trying to figure out what to do, especially given that, as you know so well, this was an administration that felt deeply it was elected to end wars in the Middle East, not start them, and was never going to send a ground force into Syria. So it needed a partner that was willing to stop ISIS, that was willing to hold terrain and advance without toppling Assad the head of of Syria, right? Right, right. There was no appetite for regime change. So the Americans are on this Goldilocks hunt, and then they see this group of Syrian Kurds. They have a ground force that's willing to do the fighting and dying. So they come in from the air, make a difference where they can, and realize that this is a group they can maybe go the distance with to stop ISIS hold on terrain. And that is what happens from the summer of 2014 all the way forward till today, actually. But it is much easier to kill a terrorist than to slay an ideology. Right. And there's no question that the Islamic State very much continues. And as is often the pattern, the U.S. in a particularly ignominious uh, moment abandons the Kurds under the Trump administration. Tell us about that. So this happens October of 2019. The Trump administration you know, basically tweets out, the decision to withdraw. And there was real shock. And we follow Rojda going from fighting ISIS in the town of Ainisa, liberating the town from ISIS, freeing women who have been held as slaves from ISIS, and then going back to fight a NATO ally, Turkey, in the same town. That said, that decision was so politically unpopular domestically for the Trump administration. Um, The book really talks about how the Americans were right back in and are still in northeastern Syria. And I think very few actually, I think, were aware of that, but they they were only gone a couple of weeks. They were now in much lighter footprint, many fewer places, but the Americans remain this Oz-like presence that keeps people more or less on side. Right, right. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Gail Zamak-Lamont. So here we are, the first year of the Biden administration. They obviously have policy choices to make uh, with regard to the Kurds in Syria and indeed the whole region. But let's talk about the Kurds first. What are the options, I guess, for the Biden administration now? The Biden administration right now has a choice about quietly maintaining the presence in Iraq, which seems to have been a choice that is working, right? Which is they're not combat troops, but they are there uh, in a different capacity to help train and advise. And 
as long as U.S. troops can remain in Iraq, then they can supply the small number of folks who are in Syria and they can keep that mission going. And the same people who are in this book, who architected U.S. policy in 2014, are now in this administration, right? You have Tony Blinken, Brett McGurk, um, a number of people who are deeply familiar with this policy and with this group of Syrian Kurds are, are there. And I do think for the moment, there seems to be a willingness to have this quiet presence continue. We want to move on here to talk about another policy choice that faces the Biden administration, one that they've made the decision to leave Afghanistan. And given your expertise in the region, I wondered what you thought of that policy shift. Um, I believe deeply that it was inevitable. I mean, for those of us who have been watching Afghanistan, my first trip was 2005. Uh, I talked to people who were there on a very regular basis, including women who have really been changing their own neighborhoods and their country. Um, If you look at 2009, I feel that this was Vice President Biden, now President Biden's desire then, right? He never wanted the West Point speech. He was never in favor of of the Obama administration decision. And he was quite on the record about that. Right. If you go back to that vice presidential debate, which you were there, right, for back in 2012, he was very clear then. So 2009 really shaped 2021. Right. And Given the decision to leave and given the advance of the Taliban, I guess, what's the next step, if you will? So the next step is really uh, up to the Biden administration, as it always has been. Um, I believe the U.S. has extremely significant diplomatic muscle it can use if it chooses to. It can get the players. The Taliban in 1996, what few people know, the first thing they wanted was the U.N. seat. Of all things, I remember being in Kabul University looking at these primary documents going, this is what you want? (laughs) But they wanted diplomatic recognition. They wanted aid workers. They wanted technocrats. The question to me is, is the world willing to say we will exert diplomatic muscle to make sure that we don't have the absolute worst case scenario, particularly for minorities, particularly for women and girls, and are willing to force people to the table because we have leverage and we recognize it. I don't know that anybody has the appetite for that, John. When we look at the other regional players, obviously China, Iran. Pakistan, yeah. uh, Yeah, Pakistan. (laughs) That's a key one. Uh, Let's talk about each for a second. What does this mean for Pakistan other than, I assume, hundreds of thousands of refugees? So for Pakistan, the question was always, uh, be careful what you wish for, right? You say you want the Americans out. Okay, now you have a real threat coming in the form of an overwhelming number of refugees and uh, extremists that you may not be able to control. Yeah, I mean, really, right? I, I mean, the notion that the Pakistani secret police can control the Taliban seems completely insane, right? Yeah, it's a, a, and also, once Taliban has terrain, right. you know, everybody's constantly renegotiating and they understand power and they understand leverage and they understand. Uh, I think the next question, though, is they also understand their limits and losing any shot at credibility. They had hoped to win back in 96 when they wanted the UNC. 
One nation that seems more than willing to give them a UN seat is China. Correct. They met, uh, had a sort of a ministerial level meeting uh, in China with the Taliban. Tell us about that. What are the Taliban hoping to achieve and what are the Chinese hoping to achieve? So China has been quietly investing in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. or putting money into Afghanistan, taking resources, you know, as a result uh, of that. I remember being 10 years ago, eight years ago, being in Afghanistan, looking at a hospital the Chinese had funded, right? Um, China also had funded numerous natural resources efforts in the country. And anything that lessens U.S. influence, you could argue, is good for the Chinese. And that is, you know, that has been part of their calculation. But if there is right on your border a source of instability, extremism, and al-Qaeda training camps, don't think that what happens there will remain there. Right, right. They're, they probably won't observe the border. <laughs> yes, right. I mean, it's not deeply meaningful. Right. I, we had a uh, special forces veteran uh, on the podcast, I think a month ago, and we were talking about Iran and Afghanistan, and he said 40% of the uh, opiates that are, are consumed from the Afghan drug trade are consumed in Iran. Hmm. Is the destabilization of Afghanistan, is that, a, is that another disaster in the making for them? For Iran, this is not a good outcome, in part because what few people remember is that actually they had killed Iranian diplomats, the Taliban, early on in, in the 90s. And there was no love lost between the Taliban and the Iranians until they realized that they have a mutual enemy in you know, the United States. Mm-hmm. And The big concern for Iran is refugees. They've made life very difficult for Afghans who are living there now, and there are a significant number who are there now. And it's not clear that Iran has any interest in having a fully destabilized uh, Afghanistan, right? They all want the kind of Goldilocks of destabilization, right? Right. Enough to keep the Americans on their heels, but not enough to cause problems for themselves. Right. We're going to take another break, and we'll be right back. What was it about the American presence that sort of held all this together? Was it just the the fear that, you know, drones and fighter jets and suddenly would appear and your you know, your supply lines would be blown up or your or your meeting places or whatever? How was the US with so few troops and so few casualties capable of keeping a lid on it, so to speak? It's such an important question because the war no one has wanted to own across four administrations was neither the basket case nor the panacea that it was. And the heartbreak of all this is that it was U.S. support for Afghan forces, support for the Afghan air power and the ability to kind of keep pressure to help make sure that people were getting paid. Right. Right. Was part of what was keeping this equilibrium. What economy is left? It just seems to me that's that's like not just an economic downturn, it's an economic collapse. That's it. And this is what happened in Taliban in the 90s, right? I mean, I met people who sold baby dolls and shoelaces and doors and windows of their house to survive. Right. And the Taliban had no ability to run an economy, and they knew it, right? They they absolutely ran into ground. Now think about it where you have a divided country uh, and... How was anybody ever going to invest? Kamala, the protagonist of Dressmaker Karkana, had gone to Kabul um, after just being home for a little bit. 
and had come to seek investment for her business that she was starting, her next business, serial entrepreneur that she is in Afghanistan. That was in March, right before the announcement. Hmm. No one wants to invest now. And actually, I had somebody who who talked with Natal Bunz in Doha at some of the talks and said, they said, we need your technocrats and your engineers. This is where U.S. leverage actually could matter. I know it sounds absurd. I know there are people listening who will say, how could you even think about a conversation with the Taliban? But it is about avoiding worst case scenarios, in particular for minorities and women and girls. Right. And what would happen? Well, what is happening to women in areas controlled by the Taliban? Is it, in fact, the immediate imposition of the Dark Ages? Is yes. That- yeah. So basically, don't get, you know, talk to NGOs working in those areas. Women cannot go to, it's very difficult for women to go to work. There are young women who are in school who are now, of course, no longer in school. Um, those young women who were students, now the Taliban is either saying you are no longer in school or they're going and asking for lists in some places of women who are marriage age. Uh, there's one NGO worker I talked to who was telling me about armed groups coming to uh, men she worked with and saying, give us your daughters or we take them. Um, There are parents who don't know what to do now. John, everybody I know in Afghanistan now, people who had planned to be there always, they're not looking for smugglers. Everybody is trying to figure out a way out. Right. And the only thing to do is to get out, but there's no way to get out. And there's no place to go that wants them. Uh, and alongside that, you have a Taliban who did not expect to make this much progress this quickly. Right. So you have multiple, and there's lots of questions about whether Taliban leadership can actually control those people who are fighting. Right. Uh, and so you have all these multiple currents occurring simultaneously and a cell phone structure, John, that's only intermittent now. I've talked to a lot of activists who are trying to get people out of different provinces and they don't know where they are because they cannot get through to them on their phones. I wanted to ask you about the telecommunications infrastructure. Does the internet work? Can you telegram somebody from in Kandahar if you're in Kabul? Yes, it's intermittent though. And this is one of the great stories. You know, I always say it's like, you know, if people actually got to see past the narrative of the basket case in Afghanistan, they'd see a young and connected generation that was fighting every single day for something better. And that was not just in Kabul. And so, you know, you had Herat University's 51% women. Right. Right. And, and, and so you have all of these people who grew up in a country that looked very different and they don't even remember Taliban rule. They weren't, you know, even old enough right. to remember that. But they do have cell phones. They do have Internet. They do use WhatsApp. Many are on Facebook. They use all of this. And now they're trying to figure out what comes next. Will there emerge, do you think, a cadre of women fighters to fight the Taliban in the way that the daughters of Kobani did? The cultural pieces aren't there. The reason why the Syrian Kurds were able to do that was because they were already the offshoot of a different group, right? The PKK in Turkey. Mm -hmm. And they also were coming from this ideology, the Ocalan ideology you raised, which was the Kurds cannot be free until women are free. Mm -hmm. And then Arab groups, Christian groups, lots of other women joined. But it was sort of first seeing that, wow, you know, this is happening and they're winning. There is a lot of discussion about that in Afghanistan. And there are women in the Afghan forces that U.S. service women trained. But their fate is very unclear right now. Yeah. Well, 
what's next for you now since you seem to be one of the busiest women on the planet what are you what are you doing next i mean i have the privilege of, of doing work i i love and we had the screen adaptations of both ashley's war and daughters of kobani in the works oh tell us about that uh, so ashley's war is at uh universal with reese witherspoon producing and oh, wow. then uh daughters of kobani actually was purchased by secretary clinton and chelsea clinton and sam branson's a uh, new production company. Well, I can tell you one thing, which is that Reese Witherspoon just sold her company yes. for $900 million. Yes. So, you know, if they say we can't afford an Uber for you, <laughs> you can say, yes. <laughs> call Blackstone. We'll charge it to them. That's right. Absolutely. I'm going to call them and I'm going to charge the whole craft table to the Blackstone. <laughs> if you're listening, Blackstone, the bill's coming. Gail, thank you very, very much for doing this. We very much appreciate it. Delighted to join you. And uh, we look forward to Reese Witherspoon's $100 million production (laughs) of your book. I think that'll be good. Thank you. Have a great day. I shall. Same to you. Thank you for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was and is Ben McNamara. Tune in tomorrow for the first part of our interview with Lisa Bryant, the director of the Netflix series Jeffrey Upstein, Filthy Rich. See you then.